Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my wallpaper is better than your wallpaper. Well, I don't have any wallpaper, but that said, I've also seen the wallpaper that you're talking about and I would agree. Yes, for listeners and indeed for Jen, by that statement, I mean I am 99% certain that my wallpaper has more tigers on it than your wallpaper. Again, I don't I don't have wallpaper, but um, I don't have any tigers on my wall either, so... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've, I've seen Mickey's new flat. Pre-wallpaper. I'm Jen Offord and I want to know why they call them the terrible twos when they should just really say children are arseholes. What child are you talking about? Mine. She's not two. Yeah, she's only just one. No, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. It doesn't start at two, is what I'm driving at. It starts at one. No, I think it gets worse at two. Is, is well, oh, that's something to look forward to then, because let me tell you, it's been quite the weekend. Well, I mean, maybe that's to do with where you are in your cycle, Jen. And later on, I have a natter with Caroline Deffrin about period power, overcoming the woo-woo in her latest art project, 28 Days Greater. I talk to comedian Susie Ruffle about cats. I've nothing more to say on that, because what more is there? Probably just cheering. <laughs> in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be talking about YouGov's Women in Sport report. And in Rated or Dated, it's Standard Issue versus The Guardian Round 2, as we watch <laughs> 2001 Shrek. Ding, ding! But first, clinches, conservatorships, and can I have a Pop-Tart, please? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. All together now, Jen. We are Britain and we have one dream. Come on, Jen, you know the words. <laughs> Strong Britain, great nation. Come on, Jen. Strong Britain. No. Britain, great no. nation. Okay, okay. Just in case you wondered what the fuck I was doing. That was actually a song that the UK government were urging children to sing to celebrate... Brace yourself. One Britain, one nation day on June the 25th. When did that happen? Last Friday, if you're listening on Wednesday. Is that a new thing? If They, they made it up, didn't they? <laughs> Look, if you're going to get the Nazi youth to work, you have to set out the guidelines. <laughs> did you see that brilliant thing the other week with Richard Maidley talking about Shamima Begum? Oh, I saw references to it. I just couldn't bring myself to watch Maidley be a prick again. It was wonderful. They were talking about Shamima Begum and he said at the end of it, mm, mm, yeah, so um, at, at the end of the uh, Second World War, uh, you know, obviously they went after, um, you know, like blah, 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 war criminals. So, never went after the Hitler Youth, though, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Strong Britain, great nation. Oh, well, Mick, another week, another war against something distracting that could be dealt with in a kinder, easier way. I don't believe you, Jen. That sounds impossible. Well, let me tell you, it's obesity again this week. We wondered where you'd been. (laughs) Turns out you'd been silently creeping up on all the children in the UK while they've been locked indoors for a year, which is a huge surprise, right? Colour me shocked. But we don't really know the extent of the problem because the National Child Measurement Programme, a scheme measuring the height and weight of school children in reception and year six in order to assess obesity, has been paused for the last 18 months. Well, that programme is set to restart, but there are very mixed feelings about it. While the chair of the National Obesity Forum, Tam Fry, called for increased weigh-ins, Alex Norris, the Shadow Public Health Minister, said we can't just shame children and their parents into losing weight. 
I think Tam Fry should change their name to Tam Bake because it's much healthier. Tam <laughs> Tam Steam. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the government also announced last week that it would be banning pre-watershed adverts for food with high sugar, salt and fat content, as well as new rules on online promotion of junk food. But, curiously, the rules don't apply across the board. Marmite, for example, would not face an advertising ban because apparently it's not seen as a significant contributory factor to childhood obesity, despite containing very high levels of salt. So, clearly someone at the Department of Health isn't a hater. Oh, it is delicious. Are you a hater? It is. No, oh. do you know what? Weirdly, I neither love it nor hate it. I feel like, oh, I don't mind it. But I'm not like, oh, where's the marmite? Or like, oh, get it away from me. I'm just like, it's all right, isn't it? And You're such yeah. a contrarian. <laughs> I know. It's like neither rated nor dated, just yeah, yeah, in the middle. <laughs> Even before the pandemic, childhood obesity was a real problem. Around one in three children leaving primary school are classified as overweight in the UK, with one in five classified as obese, contributing to one of the highest rates in childhood obesity in Western Europe. But... Are these the answers? Mm. I agree that shaming children isn't a great idea if yep. we want them to develop healthy relationships with their own and other people's bodies. I can also see that little Jen really, really wanted a Pop-Tart. I still do because they're fucking delicious. And she probably wouldn't have even known Pop-Tarts existed had they not been heavily marketed at children. Yeah. So I do see some merit in this plan. But guess what I think would be better? I'm ready to have my mind blown, Jen. I think that educating people properly about food, Wowzers. what's good, <laughs> I know, mind blown, what's good, what isn't, and how it is absolutely possible to enjoy the occasional Pop-Tart and not feel a lifetime of guilt about eating carbs for it. Mm. Educate people properly about exercise, provide a better, broader selection of sports at schools and teach kids that it is fun to run around. Finally, and this is a big one, make sure people have enough fucking money to be able to afford nutritious, healthy food and know what to do with it and not be dependent on shitty bog-offs to feed their children. Oh, next week, Jen demands a moon on the stick. Come on. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, Jen. Absolutely right. I know, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, I mean, I am just about to talk about something that might make everyone feel very sick, no matter what they've just eaten. Yeah, and so Hat Mancock, the UK's foremost thinning-on-top office fondler, has pulled out uh, of the Cabinet. Having resigned as Health Secretary, Mancock is replaced by Sajid Javid. More on that in a bit. People have criticised, go on, I'll use his real name, Matt Hancock's handling of the COVID crisis for more than a year now, this podcast included. Mm -hmm. But now we all know there was at least one situation he could get a grip on. As mm. And those of a sensitive disposition should look away now. The Sun revealed exclusive footage of Hancock getting handsy with his married aide, Gina Colladangelo, in his ministerial office back at the beginning of May in what is blatantly a breach of lockdown's no-hugging rules. Apparently, despite his apology being accepted by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Hancock quit his position as health secretary to limit damage to the reputation of the Conservative <laughs> Party. Yeah, that was hard to say with a straight mm. face, given that the Tories appear to be made of Teflon. Seriously, though, it must be bad enough finding out your spouse is having an affair, but to find it out so publicly, and for that affair to be with Matt Hancock. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers to Gina's husband. 
But how did that footage reach the sun? Hancock looks pretty shifty as he checks behind the door before firmly grasping his millionaire lobbyist government aid by the buttocks for a teenage <laughs> snog fest. Did he not notice a CCTV camera? Or maybe a tiny drone? Or, you know, Dominic Cummings slithering under the door like the X-Files' Eugene Victor Toombs? And that breach of security isn't the only question that needs answering. Why didn't Johnson sack Hancock? Particularly as it's less than a week since dum 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 and it Cummings <laughs> made the revelation that Johnson thought Hancock was fucking hopeless. That is a quote. I suppose firing someone over an affair would seem like the grossest hypocrisy, even for our slippery fuck of a Prime Minister, <coughs> Jennifer Curie. <coughs> Although now he's saying he did fire him, it's all very weird. But it's not just the office fondling and breach of lockdown rules that Hancock had a hand in. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Uh, Writing, that is the problem. Concerns have also been raised about whether it was proper for Collard Angelo to be handed a taxpayer-funded job advising the man it was later discovered she was having an affair with. I mean, no shit, Sherlock, there are concerns. And although it would take a shitload more cash than £15,000 a year for me to contemplate a game of tonsil tennis with Hancock... The question as to we, the taxpayers, have been funding his inept groping is a big one. Friends of Hancock, yeah, we were surprised too, <laughs> insist his relationship with Colodangelo only started six weeks ago. What? But even if that is the case, just this month Hancock travelled to Oxford with Colodangelo for a G7 meeting of health ministers, a trip for which, sources confirmed, the Department of Health and Social Care, and therefore the taxpayer, paid the costs. Furthermore, despite this scandal, it is unlikely we've seen the back of Hancock, as he is, of course, still MP for West Suffolk, and Johnson's reluctant acceptance of Hancock's resignation included the line, I am grateful for your support and believe that your contribution to public service is far from over. On which note, welcome back to the Cabinet, Sajid Javid, former Chancellor, former Home Secretary and now Health Secretary. I am sure than sure that Javid will give us much to talk about in the forthcoming weeks and months. But having a treasury man at the heart of health is a big win for Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Probably less so for our brilliant, beloved NHS. Would you like some good news, Mick? What? It's like the, the thought of Matt Hancock groping someone not enough to put a smile on your face, Jen. I said on Twitter, and I maintain, I watched that video and I... It just remember that what has been seen cannot be unseen. That is just <laughs> my message to anyone who has not yet watched it. Anyone who has resisted staring at that particular car crash, just remember. He does look so happy, though, and it's, it's a weird thing to see, having seen his face so much for the past year and a half, to see him, like, smiling and giddy. I don't know, mm. I thought he looked quite jovial and giddy when he was crying on the... Do you remember when he pretended to cry? <laughs> yeah. He actually looked, like, quite happy, I thought. Oh, my Hancock. Hatman Cock. Hat cock man. <laughs> Imagine what an absolute kick in the tits it is to be single and know that that Matt Hancock is getting his end away like all over the shop. Absolutely <laughs> incredible scenes. One of my friends said that he would rather fuck Matt Hancock than vote for him. And I've got to say, one, I don't think that was an option. That wasn't how it worked. But also, <laughs> I think my friend in question very much was considering being the penetrator rather than the penetrated in that situation. 
Oh, the mind boggles, but shall we move on? Um, <laughs> Give me that good news, Jen. Right, so you may recall on last week's podzine that Hannah chatted to Kaylee Lenares of campaign group Gibraltar for Yes about the then forthcoming referendum on the country's extremely harsh abortion laws. In fact, in Gibraltar, obtaining an abortion was punishable by life imprisonment. Did you notice that I was speaking in the past tense there, Mick? I did, Jen, and I'm doing a little smile. And that's because the good voters of Gibraltar have overwhelmingly, that's 62 to 36%, not, you know, 52 to 49 point whatever. That's that's bad maths. There's a 2% missing there. Uh, Yeah, I thought that. I assumed that that's like spoilt ballots or... Okay. Or or like maybe 2% turned up and wrote, don't know, or I, I don't know. They've overwhelmingly chosen to relax those laws so that abortion will become legal where a woman's physical or mental health is at risk or where fetuses have fatal physical defects. It's worth saying that this is still harsher than abortion laws Mm. in most European countries, but it is certainly a step in the right direction. So congratulations, Gibraltar. Definitely. We will take a small win. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we know that you're toxic. Lovely stuff. The you this week is the patriarchy in general and Jamie Spears specifically. So last week, Britney Spears delivered an emotional speech to a Los Angeles court calling for an end to the abusive, in her words, conservatorship that has governed her life for 13 years. What's a conservatorship? Well, under US law, conservatorship is the appointment of a guardian or a protector by a judge to manage the financial affairs and or daily life of another person due to old age or physical or mental limitations. And since 2008, Britney's father, Jamie Spears, has had control over his daughter's estate, career and other aspects of her personal life thanks to this unusual legal agreement. I just want my life back, said Britney. This conservatorship is doing me way more harm than good. I deserve to have a life. I'm great at what I do. All I want is to own my money and share my story to the world. I want to be able to be heard. So now, if you're remembering that time Britney shaved her head in a very public breakdown, because aggressive paparazzi and media meant she wasn't allowed to have any other kind of breakdown, or indeed any other sort of trip to the shops or drive out to buy a snack, it was all very, very public. But if you're remembering that and thinking... She didn't seem very well, you'd have a point. But there is a long old history of women being diagnosed with mental illness and then never being released from that diagnosis. Is she even allowed to get better? Let's put it this way. Currently, with her dad as conservator, Brittany has an IUD implant that she does not want and is not allowed to take out. That, my friends, is all kinds of fucked up. Wow. Also, legal experts and advocates say it is difficult for people placing conservatorships to get out of them. And that, my friends, is also all kinds of fucked up. Imagine your whole life being dictated by your lowest ebb, with little to no chance of that ever changing. So, if you want to know more about this, have a look at Dr Jess Taylor's timeline on Twitter. She is excellent on how damaging and sexist the psychiatric labelling of women and girls is. And her forthcoming book with the excellent title, Sexy But Psycho, will, I have no doubt, shine a very important light on this. I also add that Victoria Smith is also bang on about this subject. And you can follow them on at Dr Jess Taylor and at Glosswich, respectively. In fact, I'm going to leave you with this quote from Victoria Smith. The weaponization of mental health diagnoses against individuals by abusive parents and partners is, I think, 
far more common than is generally believed. Not least because abusers prime observers not to listen to irrational complainants. Hashtag free Britney. Hi, Hannah here. Hi. That voice you can hear is Susie Ruffle. Hello, Susie. Hello. Sorry, I hide back to you at maybe the, the wrong point. I was I was joining in on the high, but yeah. hello, I'm Susie Ruffle. I'm going to end this. <laughs> yeah, okay, so this has been awkward. You have a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye now. Goodbye. Honestly, it's Monday morning and I'm already being paid money to talk to you about cats. I can't believe I'm allowed to get away with this shit. I mean, it, it is astonishing that I've got a job where I'm basically just talking about my cat. I mean, a lesbian cliche, come on. I know. I mean, it's I ridiculous. I live by myself and I have two cats. Oh, one of them's turned up. I knew this would happen. She heard. She heard. It's funny because I was going to say that typically they won't turn up during the interview because they'll know it's an interview about cats. And I had started shutting them out because Jenny Eclair had a bad experience and apparently could see right up its ass when we were on a Zoom call. And I started <laughs> shutting them out of the meeting. Oh, come on, Jenny, chill out. Come on, don't pretend you haven't seen up a cat's ass on Zoom before. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking about Zoom, I want to ask you, before we talk about your Radio 4 show, which is what we're here for, most of your life, and in particular, most of your work has gone on to Zoom <laughs> recently. Now, as yes. a cat owner, how have those two things mixed for you? Well, the online gigs are sort of a real mixed bag of absolute horror shows and actually quite fine. That's about as good as, <laughs> oh, that was all right. Oh, all right. I've not walked away from a Zoom gig and gone, oh, well, I think it's clear who's the king of comedy. <laughs> I've more likely left and gone, oh, God, oh, no, <laughs> what am I going to do with my life? But some of the online gigs that they've managed to work it really well where you can hear the audience. And so you have like a Zoom thing where you have a Zoom audience and actually you can chat to them and that's quite good. Some of the ones that you do, they basically, people don't turn their mics on. So you're just sort of shouting into a into the wind, really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like just nothing. And I was doing one of those gigs, which, you know, are pretty horrific, but they were paying my mortgage at the point, at that point. <laughs> And halfway through a routine, the cat just got up and walked out. And I thought, I'm getting walkouts in my own flat. This is absolutely unacceptable. This gig is playing for your dreamies. So you need to chill. But yeah, my whole life's been on Zoom. So I was on tour. And uh, obviously that all just stopped. I mean, and I don't get me wrong, in talking about this, I am very aware that I, it is not one of the great tragedies of the COVID epidemic that my tour got postponed. But it was a strange time of being like, what do I do? Mm. What do I do? Because, you know, I know that you know loads of stand-ups. I'm 35 now. I've been doing stand-up since I was about 24, maybe 23. I did my first gig. And I've... For that time, I've never had a break of more than a week um, of wow. not doing stand-up. Yeah, maybe I had maybe I had 10 days holiday at one point. But, you know, to begin with, at the beginning, I couldn't afford to go away. I'm not, you know, I was just about making my rent. I didn't have money to go on a holiday. And then often when I've gone abroad, when I've gone to Australia or New Zealand, I've ended up gigging when I've been there or I've gone there to gig. Yeah. So I've never really stopped. And so it was a weird thing of just sort of going, oh, okay, who am I mm. when I'm not doing this? And I think my girlfriend will, will agree. Quite annoying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Quite an annoying person to live with. It's been, it's been a weird time. And I'm very lucky that, I mean, similar to you, I do a lot of stuff on audio. So I've got a couple of podcasts that I do, and one of which I sort of created in lockdown. And that gave me a real sense of purpose. 
Yeah, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had a job. I genuinely think I would have just lost my mind. That was the thing. So I've got I've got a podcast with Tom Allen called Like My Dear Friends, which we do really sporadically. I mean, Tom and I constantly joke that like the podcast goes out every like fourth full moon when the tide's out, like because <laughs> there's just no rhyme or reason to when we do an episode. It's yeah. just like it's every second Tuesday of a third month. If that Tuesday falls on a Friday, it's that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I did this other I've got another podcast called Out where I interview inspiring queers, uh, where I chat to people from the LGBTQIA plus community. And because it's been, everyone's been at home. Yeah. I've managed to have like some incredible yeah. guests. I don't think I would have had. Yeah, that is the upside. Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So like I had uh, Dennis O'Hare, who's in like, He's in This Is Us. He's like won a Tony. He's in like loads of True Blood, loads of big American TV shows, mm. American Horror Story. He's one of like the core cast of that. I like messaged him and was like, you're gay and fabulous. Can I interview you? And he was like, okay. <laughs> because like, you know, people just had literally fuck all to do. Mara Wilson, who was Matilda in the film yeah. Matilda when she was a little girl. She followed me on Twitter. I just DM'd her. It's like, can I chat to you and record it and put it out on my podcast? She's like, yeah, okay. So that that was sort of the upside for me in that like I could continue creating work. Because I think similar to what you were just saying, I would have, I don't know how I would have coped. Let's talk about My Cat the Judge, which is yes, a yes. new show you've done for Radio 4. Tell me what yes. the impetus of that was. Well, I've got a cat and I like looking clever on the radio. <laughs> So I thought, how can I merge these two things? So, I, so I've spoken about my cat quite a lot on stage. Um, Velma. Yep, Velma. Basically because everything in my life is material. If you come into my life, you might become material. You just have to sign a disclaimer the moment that you meet me. But yeah, Radio 4, I, I was speaking to a producer at Radio 4 and she had this great idea about cats. And we, we've been speaking about it for a while and then obviously sort of lockdown hit. And there was, you know, it's quite an interesting conversation about how, how do our cats feel about us? being here all the time mm. like I was quite intrigued like what's going on in my cat's head because like she's beautiful but I think quite stupid mm. she's really she's stunning she's a stunning beast but she is really simple you know <laughs> falls on her back like does, doesn't always land on her feet you're like how is this how are you yeah how is this and she's got a very small head which I think means a very small brain and so I was quite interested in chatting so the great thing about so it's not just me talking about cats before anyone's like i'll, I'll give that a mess although to be it's fair me. i would listen to that well. <laughs> but i can't make a documentary just for you that's the thing <laughs> this one goes out to Hannah. <laughs> so i chat to different sort of animal behaviorists some from the uk some from america where we we talk to people about why why cats behave in a certain way what we expect from them and what they actually want. So like, there's a lot of stuff online of people like putting cats in outfits and different things like that. And on the one hand, you go, oh, that's kind of cute. And then you chat to an animal behaviorist and you're like, oh, they God, don't that's... That. <laughs> yeah, they're not... It turns out, you know, she might look like a supermodel, but she doesn't want to wear this small dress. <laughs> so I just had this great opportunity to speak to these really clever people about what animal behavior is. And like, you know, we got a bit broader in it about cats, dogs, you know, domestic animals. Mm and how they came to be domestic animals. There's a bit of like history in there as well. And it's not really something that I've done an awful lot of before, because I mean, as, as we mentioned, you know, I'm a comic and that's normally what I do, but I absolutely jumped at the chance to do something that was a bit more, I mean, not serious, because I think it's quite funny, 
but that was a bit more um I don't know, intelligent, less cock jokes. <laughs> are we allowed to swear on this? Of course you fucking course. are. You've been on our show before. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Fuck this. Uh, no, but so, you know, I always sort of worried that my cat, cause, you know, my, my partner's got a, an, a normal job. Uh, you know, she's got, got a, a job where she, well, used to go into an office and that sort of thing. And then I would work in the evenings. And so the cat would have me for some other day. And then she might have Alice later on in the day. And I did often wonder, I was like, oh God, is she lonely? She doesn't really go outside. She's, she, she, she had the sort of choice to go outside and was like, absolutely not. And so she is sort of a house cat. And I sort of worried sometimes. And I was like, oh, has she got a horrible life? Is she mm. sad? And it was quite reassuring to speak to animal behaviorists who are like, stop putting your human wants and yeah. desires onto an animal and I think that's quite interesting and it's something that I don't think I've really heard of a yeah. lot before we are terrible for anthropomorphization of that's the word animals. oh my god fucking how I say that in the podcast I'm not joking it took about seven days <laughs> yes and we're just gonna have that just once more Susie. just once more just, you know what you can just give me the word and I'll drop it in that still wasn't it can you just if you just copy me straight after yeah you still not managed it I mean it took so long it was it was embarrassing we all had to have a bit of a break afterwards Sorry, go on. Yeah, us putting our behaviours onto animals. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I've got one cat that's really smart. I mean, she is really smart. And I know Good like, for her. there is proven evidence that she's really smart because she can work out how to open cupboards in my house. And it took my mum ages to do that. <laughs> so she is really smart. The other one is just brute force. She gets what she wants by just brute force. She will yeah. just charge at things until it I happens. I can respect that. But I don't know on the scale of things I say smart. I mean, smart for a cat. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I have attributed personalities to them. God, here she's back again. Back. I have attributed personalities to them. And I do realise a lot of it is absolute bunkum. Um, yeah. But that said, I spent like the best part of a year shut in the house with only them. They had to become more than just my cats. They had to become actually, I talked to them way more than I should. Like I would say a lunatic level of talking but I think that they like that though they like that and I think it was quite interesting to hear about sort of what a cat wants and what you know a cat is you know there's not been you know there's not bags and bags of research there's a lot more research done into dogs but they're doing more of it at the moment and it's quite interesting about sort of you know the Egyptians would like I mean I can basically not even see Hannah now for cats (laughs) the the Egyptians would sort of worship them and so it's quite interesting their sort of role to becoming domesticated whereas obviously a lot of dogs would have been like working dogs whereas cats you're not going to get a cat to work for you you know unless it's getting rid of a mouse oh not Um, even that not even that my cat's but Velma would have absolutely nothing to do with a mouse she'd be just not interested at all they run away from spiders they are like genuinely yeah yeah is a bit like that yeah she did catch a fly once and she was so surprised that she was actually behaved like a cat that she, <laughs> go of it. she was like oh my god i can no that's it it's gone <laughs> there's something interesting about cats though isn't there you are lesbian do you use word lesbian or do you use, yeah, I use word lesbian you can call me anything really whatever you call me i've been called it before <laughs> okay. you're an old lesbian you say so you are a lesbian and I am a single woman and there is something about the kind of sneering attitude towards cats that seems quite feminine in that way, that there's something mm-hmm. about cats and it's like, oh, they're, they're just for kind of, just for sad, weird women rather than, yep. you know, dogs. Dogs are for men. Dogs are, dogs are for active people. Um, yeah. 
I don't know why that is, apart from it's just something to do with women, isn't it? Well, we speak about that a little bit in the uh, in the show. And I think it's quite interesting. Okay, I've got a theory on it. I think, like, needy people... I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that feminists don't have dogs. But I think, like, with a cat, you have to be willing to be like, I'll let you do your thing, yeah. I'll do my thing, yeah. we'll respect each other. Oh, you get no reinforcement from cats. No, whereas with a dog, the dog's constantly like, hello, 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 how are you? Hello, <laughs> hello, hello, I'm still here. Whereas a cat's like, all right, yeah. and then walks off. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have dogs. I, I mean, I do love dogs, but I couldn't have one because I'm just not here all the time. I say that, I am now, currently. Yeah. But I wasn't for a really long time. And they do look after themselves, but they do get really arsy when I go away for a long time. I'm just, I think maybe I'm just going to have to put Peggy out. Jesus, talk about needy. It's quite interesting, those things that we find in the show. And um, really interesting talking to the animal behaviourists about how little they need from us in a way. Yeah. Did you download Meow Talk during uh, lockdown like everybody else did? No, I didn't. But I did hear about it. Did you? I did. In fact, I took my nephew to the cinema one day last week and it was one of the first times I'd sort of been out in the real world and I haven't downloaded track and trace onto my phone so I still fill in my name and address on the bit of paper yeah and my nephew's like why haven't you just downloaded it onto your phone and I said because I'm just gonna have to offload something that I actually really need on my phone in order to make place uh, make space for this track and trace app and he (laughs) looked at my phone and he was like I think you could probably lose me I'll talk I was like, huh. no. And and I said, but you installed it on your phone. And he said, yeah, I deleted it. But I realised my cat said nothing interesting. Right, yeah. Interestingly, I learned something about how manipulative my cats can be from that. Because basically, Joan is always on my lap. But sometimes Peggy sits on my lap and Joan gets the hump. And then she cries. And I recorded what that cry meant. And according to Meow Talk, that cry means I'm in terrible pain. And she clearly wasn't. She was clearly just. She was clearly just like, I don't like it. It's not going my way. I want to be on your lap. I'm going to pretend to be ill. But I mean, that's the thing. They can be drama queens. Oh, absolutely. That's what I've learned. Yeah, that's, that's why I, I like them. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, I, like. I think you. I think you get the cat you deserve, which is why mine's quite needy <laughs> and quite dramatic. <laughs> Definitely, Susie. What else have you been up to? Going back on tour. I'm at back out on the road. Yep. So that starts sort of. I'm doing a few socially distanced gigs across the summer in my, in my tour and then back out on the road in and run at the Soho Theatre uh, if people want to come along to that and then sort of basically it's the tail end of my 2020 tour but so it's going to be I mean I'm going to sort of shake up the show a bit I think it'd be weird if I don't mention what we've all been through I think people will be like does she know yeah does she know that we that this has happened where has she been uh, but yeah I'm really excited to get back out to doing stand-up I've really missed it I've really really missed it and I love it I've got some comedy mates who are like Oh, I can kind of give or take now that I've had this big really? break. Yeah, quite a few of my comedy friends have sort of gone, ah, oh, maybe I've maybe I maybe I've found another thing during lockdown, or maybe I'm doing more presenting, or maybe mm. I'm doing podcasting, or maybe I'm doing something else. But for me, I love doing other things and I love doing my podcasts and you know, the opportunities I get on TV are always super fun and I'm always delighted to work on telly. But the bread and butter is always the comedy for me. Mm. It's the stand-up. I love it. I love writing a show. I love working out what bits are good and what bits aren't. I love playing to a massive room. That's where I get my like real joy. So I'm really excited to be doing that again. I wonder if when those people 
go back on stage that suddenly they'll be like, oh, shit, yeah, I do want to do this again. Yeah, I, maybe, I maybe. Yeah. But, yeah, it's really exciting to be able to get back out there. So where can people find out more about getting some tickets for your show if they want to? Absolutely. So it's uh, my website, which is susieruffle.com. And then if you're interested in any of my podcasts, one's called Out with Susie Ruffle. That's the one where I interview people. And then the one with Tom Allen is called Like-Minded Friends. And as I mentioned before, it's on the third Tuesday of every full moon, if that Tuesday falls uh-huh. on Friday. There is a lot, uh, a large back catalogue to listen to. I have actually listened to some. There of them. is a lot, not, not of... in the run up to this, but when you when you first started it, because um, you are both very funny people. And you well, it's to... just a mess. You basically get to. It's been. It's over five years we've been doing it, so you get to hear. So it starts with Tom and I. The reason Tom and I started it was because we both didn't have enough work. We thought it'd be a good wow. way to get ourselves out there. And now Tom's obviously like basically a household name. Yeah. And, you know, I'm certainly getting a lot more telework than I ever have before. So it's quite people that people will message us and be like, I've listened to the whole series in three months and I've just like caught up to date. There's like different relationships. There's like, so I think I've met the one and then like, you know, eight months later, it's like, so we broke up. And, like, <laughs> and I think we're both so honest and open in it because we're basically just having a conversation. that I think people get a real insight into our lives that yeah. we probably didn't mean to share but now it's on the internet for everyone to enjoy yeah oh he's such a delight tom he really is he really is he's the best yeah susie this has been great this has been lovely my cat the judge is on tuesday the 6th of july on radio 4 i've written that 11 now i'm guessing that's 11 a.m because having listened to it you don't use the you don't use any bad i don't words. use any root words so i'm no. guessing it's 11 a.m yeah. rather than 11 p.m but uh, you can find out more on the BBC website. This has been terrific, Susie. Thanks ever so much. Thank you very much. It's nice to chat. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by artist Carolyn Deffrin. Carolyn, hello. Hello, it's very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too. Let's dive straight in. What day of your cycle are you on? This is a perfect question because I happen to be aligned with the month right now so i know i'm on day 25 it's june 25th oh that's amazing i'm day 15 which means that in two days time my partner will start to smell funny to me (laughs) really around day 17 18 (laughs) gary starts to smell funny and it's not his fault it's very much my nose That's good that you can own that. (laughs) So obviously we're talking about our periods and that is because you are helming a new project called 28 Days Greater at the Camden People's Theatre. Tell me about it. Well, it's part of their digital Calm Down Dear Festival, which is an annual festival of feminism. And it was a piece that I actually, of course, planned to do pre-pandemic and at the time was just starting to read an amazing book called Wild Power which just completely gave me an idea that my period could be a positive thing, a powerful thing. I I was jet lagged coming back from America. This was last, you know, Christmas of 2019 when I last saw my family. And I remember just being like, fuck it, I'm just going to apply for this festival. And I'm going to do a one woman show because I've been coming off of a lot of collaborative projects. And I just need to see if I can write something all by myself. And I'm, I'm, I love collaborating and it's in my blood, but I just felt like, why don't you just see if you've got the answers inside you? And so at, at the same time as reading about this kind of 
idea of menstruation as a secret power code that that nobody ever talks about Mm -hmm. and then thinking about creativity in a new way they kind of came together and so what was going to be a one-woman show performed live has turned into 28 short films and I think I love that form that it's become actually it's quite a change yeah but you know I mean my background is in theater and yet since I've moved to the UK I've been sort of moving between visual art and performance and so it actually kind of felt like a natural move over. I, I've done a lot of video installation as well as um, theater performances that kind of starting to feel more like installation. So it kind of felt like a nice medium to say, OK, you have to just embrace this medium right now because we're in a pandemic. And how does that feel theatrical? I think I often think cinematically for theater. So it's been nice to just fully embrace that. So as you've said, there are 28 different short films charting different aspects of menstruation from different points of view. So obviously the listeners and I haven't seen any of them yet. So I'm going to be really mean and ask you to pick a couple of your favourites and tell us what they are and why you love them. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I, I've shown them to a few close friends just to get some feedback. And what, what I'm really enjoying at the moment is people saying that they like different ones going, ah, two, 17 and six are my favorites or, <laughs> and, and everyone's got a different set of numbers. And so that that's feeling quite like the goal of the project, though I might not have realized it is, is right in terms of like, oh, what speaks to you? And we've got 28 options here. So some of my favorites Day two is Be With The Pain, and I think that's something I've, I really got switched on to with the, with the book Wild Power in this idea of like, I always was quick to pop ibuprofen growing up. It was like, oh, as soon as you start to feel any pain, you just take meds to numb it so you mm-hmm. can just get on with it and do your, do your work or do anything. And, and I'm trying to do that less and trying to just really be with it and see what that does. And if it gets intolerable, then, you know, and I have other things that I really need to get on with. But just trying to, to sit with that. So I love the, the film, you know, all the films are about one to two minutes. Some are a little bit longer, some a bit shorter. But that one is really about stillness. And it kind of feels almost like aspirational, like, can, can you just stay still? And I think quite a few of them are aspirational in that way. Um, Rage is another one. I interviewed 28 people as part of this process because I love interviewing people and that's often a part of my work. And so I thought, even though I'm trying really hard not to be over collaborative, I still felt like those conversations. <laughs> Just can't stop yourself. You know, it's interesting. I couldn't stop myself. I mean, I started out and was like, okay, just write it yourself, write it yourself. And then, which made me understand the beginning and the end of my cycle really well because those feel like times of mm-hmm. solitude. And then I was like, I don't know what the middle bits are, like especially sort of, you know, the writers who talk about the four seasons of of the menstrual cycle. I was like, I've really got winter and fall. I feel like I've nailed those, especially being in the pandemic. It just feels like these are darker times. These are quieter times. But I was like, I'm out of touch with my summer and sort of energy with other people. So that's where the interviews felt actually really key. And so, yeah, so speaking with lots of people about that, I can't remember where I was going with that, but just, oh yeah, about rage. So I spoke with an amazing young woman who's 18 and she started a campaign at her school for making sure there's free sanitary products in the bathrooms and things like that. And I was asking her like when she feels the most powerful and she said, you know, I'm really, I'm really learning the power of my own rage and how to slow down with that rage. Oh God, that is such a joy to hear. And just to hear that from an 18-year-old, I just thought, I'm trying to (laughs) figure out how to slow down my rage, and I'm 42, you know? She said to really slow it down so that I can 
articulate the thing that I'm really angry about because that that is powerful and I just thought yeah that is so in all of that it's I'm very much a visual storyteller and image-based writer Um, and so kind of being inspired by my own reflections on my menstrual cycle as as well as other people's and then just saying ah I've got this image for rage so you'll have to see on day 23 (laughs) (laughs) on July 23rd yeah look out for that one the book that did it for me was Period Power by Maisie Hill and we chatted to Maisie on the podcast of course she's incredible and I have got to admit that I went into it thinking it was going to be a little bit woo woo for me I was like oh I'm not into crystals (laughs) and stuff this isn't going to work for me and then had my mind blown and was like why isn't this taught at school why isn't this book given to girls and boys so everyone knows what's going on and the, the small thing I took from it that really made a massive difference is why I asked you what day of your cycle you're on. And that is just to number them. So even though I just, all I have in my diary is the number of where I'm up to, what day I'm on. And I started out on what Maisie suggests is, write, write just how you're feeling each day for a few months. And I did that with just a word each day, like angry, Gary smells funny, whatever it was at the time. And now I know I'm like, oh, it's that thing. Oh, yeah, it's day 17, of course. And it just gives me that little bit of structure. And so I now am a bit woo woo and I love it. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I felt like not only is it a way for me to become more aware of myself, but to also share that, you know, with my partner and and. And, you know, I lost it on Monday. It was my birthday, actually, on the 21st. Happy birthday. And thank you. And then the next day I was like, I don't think that he did anything wrong. That was all my own shit. And he was like, hey, what day were you on in your cycle? And I was like, 21, which can be a little bit of a, like, out-of-body experience for me. And he's like, okay. And I was showing the films to another friend, and she was really resonated with number 20. And she was like, that's my day where I'm not allowed to argue. Like, even if something's coming up in me, I'm just not allowed to, because I know that it's a hormonal thing. I think it gets a little tricky because you start to think, am I suppressing myself? Or am I blaming it or using this idea that I shouldn't speak to the way I feel? And, and so I think all of that is very nuanced. But I think there's also something to be said for like, okay, hormones are responsible for this incredible sense of doubt, I feel. And it's temporary. And I think that that's the most empowering thing I'm, I'm trying to lean into is this idea that each of these feelings is temporary, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, it's, it's all movable. And I feel lofty in saying this, but I, I think a huge inspiration for this project was looking at the, you know, the preponderance of the patriarchy and feeling like, where's the female leadership and watching, you know, New Zealand soar during the pandemic and just thinking like, as I'm reading, like, oh, wait, the menstrual cycle has been told that we should just, it's something that we should hide and cover up. But wait a minute, it's a whole system that's absolutely in touch with nature and is about the cyclical, movable way of being. And listening to our bodies and resting when we need to and is there is there something about that sense of power and leadership that is not in our current you know sort of man imposed no no matter what produce 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 um and so i mean that that's a very like early starting to think that way but it's like what 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 could that mean if if men were invited into thinking about the world through the menstrual cycle or you know and, and people across the gender spectrum this is I, this becomes interesting to me not just 
only as a women's experience, but in the sort of cyclical nature and temporary nature that we all that we all carry. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's that awareness of our bodies, that that wanting to understand our bodies, and something that has for centuries and still is in in some countries used to ostracize and undermine women and to take control of that because i think even though the majority of us have or at least had periods a lot of women still find talking about them really icky or hard and we have really internalized that shame right yes 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 absolutely i mean it was really interesting. I spoke to a wide range of people uh, across those 28 interviews. Some of them were really close friends of mine from growing up who I realized, like, we never we never talked about uh-huh. this. Like, why didn't we ever talk about this? And then, you know, other people saying, like, are you sure I'm the right person to talk to about this? And then by the end of the conversation, just going like, oh, we grew up in dance studios together. Like, why? That was a female-led space. Why were we made to feel like we had to hide and feel ashamed if we had our periods and you know a tampon string is hanging out the side of our leotard like all of that in this you know is is all internalized shame and the same childhood friend and I were saying like we love that we're seeing younger women being so embracing of this Mm -hmm. like power and we feel more empowered but also we're unlearning a lot of stuff you know as we come into the middle of our lives so we may not be as free as those who have been less burdened by the shame, if that makes sense. I never fail to be amazed by the power and the confidence of a lot of young women today that that just wasn't there when I was that age and owning it, really owning it. And I think one of the most incredible aspects of that is these young women who are starting projects and campaigning to get free period products into schools into football stadiums just into places on the street in public so that there is access there because the other thing that comes up and it it shows why it's so important to talk about this is that if you haven't got the kit to look after yourself then it's really damaging period poverty is a real thing and so these conversations are very positive because they open up the option for people to notice the negative stuff as well yeah I think the more it's framed as you know, when you have that light bulb moment and you go, oh, how much have I spent on tampons in my whole life? And I am privileged, you know, I live in a country where I have access to it and I can afford it. But it's just, uh, you can see the inequity and inequality is, is, is so clear right there. So yeah, that's, that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. In addition to how, how we talk about something that marks us as different and yet is sort of the whole reason why everybody's here. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right? <laughs> yeah, Don't let the women yeah. know that. They'll get ideas above the stations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Actually, I had a really amazing friend, a heterosexual male friend who's a father of three daughters, and he said, I just think we should be holding women up and, you know, like, they are the power, they are the life force, like, the this blood is the life force. And I was just like, yes, yes, like, that's it's amazing to talk, you know, across with more people around this because it's like yeah how are we missing that like it's so obvious <laughs> but it's ingrained in us to hide it 
Well, hopefully anyone who isn't convinced yet can come and see 28 Days Greater. And they can do that because it is part of Camden People Theatre's annual Calm Down Deer Festival, as you mentioned earlier. And it runs from tomorrow, that's Thursday the 1st of July, to our listeners, to Wednesday the 28th of July. How can people get it into their ears and eyes, please? A couple of ways. Each film will be released um, one day at a time throughout July on social media, on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And that'll be through Camden People's Theatre and through through me at C. Deffrin or at Carolyn Deffrin. And you can also buy for pay what you can an exclusive ticket, which gets you all the films as one experience where you can watch the whole sequence of 28 films together, plus a little bonus commentary from myself and a little excerpt of some of the interviews um, that I did along the way. And all of that is available on Camden People Theatre's uh, website and through social media. And that website is cptheatre.co.uk. Carolyn, where can people find out more about what you're up to outside of this? Oh, great. Yeah, carolyndeffrin.com has has all the details on, on my life, both in and outside of 28 Days Greater. Awesome. I'm kind of gutted for you that your period hadn't synced up with July day I by know. day. That would have been perfect, right? <laughs> I know. I know. My partner thought, you know what you should do as a marketing strategy? You should just say, like, it starts July 1st, but doesn't actually start until your period starts. And I was like, yes, but then it will be more confusing for me. (laughs) Maybe in the future. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we discuss all things women's sport and because there's a lot going on, full disclosure up the top, some dude sport too. I'm recording this on Tuesday and I'm basically exhausted and high from the events of Monday Night Sports Things. Man, I cannot wait for the Olympics. So in case you've been in a cave or, you know, not on Twitter, you may be unaware that Andy Murray beat Nikolaus Basilashvili in the first round of Wimbledon on Monday. That's right, Murray, who's made it into the tournament as a wild card, beat 24th seed Basilashvili, and Hannah can tell you a thing or two about Wimbledon wild cards and uh, 2001 winner Goran Ivanovic just in case you're interested. In typically dramatic style, Murray won after going two sets up and dropping the third, and he's come back and take the fourth, and it was absolutely fucking glorious. The last time we saw Murray in the singles tournament at Wimbledon, he was limping off having been defeated in the semi-final by Sam Querrey. And as we all know, it's been a rocky time for Murray. We've basically all been expecting his retirement any day for the last two and a half years, so... Fingers crossed for a decent tournament for him. I don't think we should necessarily expect his third Wimbledon victory, but, you know, a couple of rounds in, I'd like that. Anyway, after I finish that, I flick back over to France v Switzerland in the Euros after receiving a text from a mate. I'd expected it to be over as it was 3-1 to reigning world champions France when I'd last looked at half-time. Alas, Switzerland had drawn level and we were into extra time. France were eventually kicked out of the tournament after Kylian Mbappe missed France's final penalty ahead of sudden death. And to be honest, he's a bit of a bellend, so I won't shed any tears on his behalf. But, of course, by the time you hear this, we'll know how England got on in their round of 16 tie against Germany, so I'm going to try not to gloat too much ahead of that. While I'm on the subject of Monday's football, I'd just like to talk about Emma Hayes, because, like, when do I not? Who was on ITV's commentary team for the earlier match between Croatia and Spain. Spain won 5-3, in case you're wondering. And Hayes was 
bloody excellent, really insightful and a joy to listen to. And while I'm hearing the likes of Wales need to score, Wales have a mountain to climb, he's fluffed his lines, he's been caught sleeping on the job, it's already sudden death because it's the last penalty before sudden death. From the male pundits, I just, I don't want to hear a word against the female pundits. I really, really don't. But look, I'm not the only person to say it. In fact, the socials were awash with haze praise, as I'm now calling it, on Monday. And indeed, digital marketing agency Blue Claw claims to have found Hayes to be the most liked pundit of the tournament through some sort of tweet-based analysis. I'm not going to pretend to understand their methodology, but, you know, it's great to hear. It's not all good news, though, as I move on to the order of the day, which is a report by YouGov on women's sport. And that report found that the public is twice as likely to watch men's sports as women's and that men are more likely to watch women's sports than women are. In fact, the report found that in all 13 of the markets polled, men's sport was more popular. But yeah, so far, so unsurprising, right? I mean, I've just spoken about men's sport for a good few minutes in this section about women's sport, so I am as guilty of it as anyone. The good news is that the report found that there was little mention of the age-old adage that women's sport is less enjoyable to watch, that the speed, quality or physicality is somehow lacking. Instead, it was widely accepted that inequalities driving supply-side issues were at play. So a lack of coverage, marketing, information or awareness is preventing people from watching women's sport. I think we think of ourselves as kind of pioneers of women's sport in the UK, but the most well-known female athletes are almost all American. Serena Williams, Simone Biles and Megan Rapinoe. Naomi Osaka is also up there and she may talk like an American, but she is very much Japanese. There is one Brit on that list and I guarantee it's not who you think it is. In fact, it is Rachel Atherton, a downhill mountain bike racer, who I reckon a lot of Brits haven't actually heard of. Also, the most watched tournaments are the Women's World Cup, WTA, that's tennis lads, and WNBA, basketball. The fact that the US stars dominate those sports and are the most well-known, generally speaking, says to me that the US are still way ahead of us in terms of what's available in women's sport. But interestingly, the US and the UK both score pretty low as consumers of women's sport. In the UK, just 2% of those polled said they watched more women's sport than men's, and only 17 said they watched men's and women's sports equally. A whopping 78% said they watched more men's sport. And in the US, 11% said they watched more women's sport. And 19% said they watched both men's and women's equally. So that is slightly depressing, but let me take you back to some good news to finish with in terms of British sport. And of those polled, 20% counted the W Series as a top two box interest, which I think means second favourite. And that has started up again. A new season is underway with Alice Powell, who you may remember I spoke to on this very podcast a couple of years ago, winning the first race of the series. Congratulations, Alice. And a final bit of good news, also Emma Hayes related, Chelsea announced last week that for the first time ever, they had sold out their season tickets for the women's team. More of this, please. So yes, lots to be excited about, but that is all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what did we watch this week that made me really want a swamp? This time we watched Shrek, released in the UK this week in 2001 
and made by DreamWorks, which had, until that point, been considered the poor man's Pixar. Loosely based on a fairy tale book of the same name, during production it saw more changes than the other side of Boris Johnson's bed. Ooh, oh, oh, that's just so unpleasant in so many ways. <laughs> that wasn't just changes to how it was animated, which were many and a bit dull to go into here. There were also changes to the cast. Shrek was originally meant to be played by Chris Farley, who had recorded most of the dialogue when he died of a drugs overdose. Nicolas Cage then allegedly turned down the lead role as he didn't want to look like an ogre, to which I'd say, Nick, that ship has already sailed. <laughs> what, a, what a different film that would have been. Bloody hell. Shrek eventually cost $60 million to make, although that appeared to be money well spent as it made $484 million at the box office, won the inaugural Oscar for Best Animated Feature and the BAFTA for Best Adapted Screenplay. It also competed for the Palm d'Or, becoming the first animated film to be selected since 1953's Peter Pan. It's in the Library of Congress, and I think we're at the stage where I don't need to explain what that means, <laughs> and went on to spawn a number of sequels and a musical, and I might as well say here that my biggest problem with Shrek is that it isn't Shrek 2. But moving on. Mm. The lead was eventually taken by Mike Myers, with Cameron Diaz playing the love interest, Princess Fiona, John Lithgow voicing the diminutive baddie, Lord Farquaad, and Eddie Murphy bringing the funny as chatty sidekick Donkey. And I might as well say here how fucking joyful it is as someone who grew up on a diet of Eddie Murphy to be able to full-throatedly cheer one of his films without having to excuse something appalling going on in it. (laughs) The plot, for those who haven't seen it, goes thus. When Lord Farquhar turfs all of the fairy tale creatures out of their homes in Duloc, they take refuge in Shrek's swamp, much to his chagrin. An attempt to get his splendid isolation back puts him on another mission to save Princess Fiona from a tall tower defended by a mighty dragon. That accomplished, he heads back to deliver Fiona as a bride to Farquhar and go back to his quiet, swampy life. Shrek, mate. I feel ya. <laughs> but Fiona's secret and, you know, love get in the way. Cue misunderstandings, a stopped wedding, much Disney mockery and a logistically baffling love affair between a dragon and a donkey. <laughs> until it all ends happily ever after. So, Jen, Mickey, anything so riddled with pop culture references and what was at the time state-of-the-art animation technology Mm. is perhaps at greater risk of dating than most films. So I'd like to start with a different question, an easier question, which is, did you enjoy it? Do you know what? I was disappointed because I thought it was going to be Shrek 2. (laughs) (laughs) And it was. I genuinely watched it. I was like, I don't remember any of this at all. I remember loving this loads more. And then right at the end, I was like... Oh, fuck, that's the second one. Right, okay. Yeah, no cat, no Puss in Boots and no Jennifer Saunders, which is, yeah, a tiny bit disappointing. Mickey? I initially, originally loved Shrek and thought it was very clever and all of its little in-jokes and send-ups of bigger films and pop culture were great. 
But in the same way that I imagine I have ruined films for other people by looking at it through a feminist lens, I've now ruined Shrek for myself by just noticing that there are two female voices in that whole cast, which is absolutely outrageous. And also, I just found it okay. It was okay. Mm. It was inoffensive. It's quite slow. It felt quite obvious. And yeah, it it was an all right time. But not a. It wasn't Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Let's put it that way. But what but is? What is? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I thought it was okay. I always thought it was okay. I, I mean, it was more striking the first time you saw it because it was so irreverent mm. to children's fairy yeah. tale stuff. But obviously, that doesn't feel the same way as it did the first time you watched it. And also, I mean, yeah, it's it didn't contain the greatest Shrek character, which is Puss in Boots. So it was it did feel like it was lacking something, which is an unfair way to judge it. You shouldn't judge it by the fact that it got better. Um, In many ways, you should say, congratulations, you spawned something and went on to be, you know, funnier still. I don't know about the third one. Maybe I've seen the third one. I don't know. But the second one is, is, I think, terrific and has way more female characters in it. Which, Although Fiona, I think Fiona's interesting because although she has bought into the idea she will be saved by a prince and, you know, she should be this and she should be that and she should be attractive and all of that, she is actually more than capable of looking after herself, which is a really positive thing to say about it and obviously learns to become less obsessed with looks as time goes on. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it's key message of the body shaming. One, they do always say, oh, she is ugly. Like that's actually not even a question. And she's not. She's beautiful to Shrek. But that is the weirdest compliment when someone goes, well, you're beautiful to me. Uh, Mm. Thanks, I think. Um, But also it's hypocritical because they body shame Farquaad the whole time. And even though he is Mm. a raging arsehole and actually John Lithgow is great in it. It is still a very hypocritical message when you're like, you should embrace people and don't judge someone, blah, 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 by just the way they look. And then, yeah. And the the short jokes are very funny. I'm going to say that. But it does feel like it's um, undermining its message a little bit. It is interesting, though, isn't it? Because how am I going to explain this in a way that makes sense? Like, so she can look after herself and she has bought into the whole fairy tale thing, but she's bought into it because it's going to get her what she wants, which is not to look like an ogre anymore after dark. Right. And not be in a tower. Yeah. By a dragon. Yeah. So then she's bought into it for her own ends. So she has agency, I guess, but then at the same time, her own ends are sort of not withstanding the dragon and the tower like a bit shit if you social I mean. conditioning's a bastard yeah isn't it, well yeah yeah exactly yeah i guess so also the dragon and donkey is interesting because again it's a little bit undermining of the big message of don't trust someone or, or, or someone some dragon some ogre by the way they look and then what changes that donkey does fall in love with dragon dragon just comes back out of nowhere I've got to say, I did see the live version, the musical, and when the dragon comes onto the stage, that was incredible. But yeah, dragon just, they leave her tied up. And she's just doing a job, man. That's just what she does. She's a dragon. She's been told to defend that tower. She mm. does it. And then suddenly she appears and she's sad. And actually, Donkey only likes her when she's vulnerable. Fuck off, Donkey. I think the answer of how she escaped is probably... She's a dragon. Told in... <laughs> no, I think it's probably told in the second uh-huh. one, isn't it? Because Prince Charming turns up subsequently to save Princess Fiona. And I think maybe that's how she was 
released maybe in whatever happened there okay um, I don't know what changes with Donkey. I mean, to be fair to him, she is absolutely terrifying. So, you know, what what changed was that she wasn't um, breathing fire at him, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. But she doesn't. She stops breathing fire at him pretty straight away. Once she sees his lovely little donkey face. Donkey's a great character. I really like Donkey. Um, although he does also get the immortal line, oh, you're a lady dragon because she's got long eyelashes and she's pink. Again, that can fuck off. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a bit mean to Dragon. I thought that was. I mean, a they bit are like... babies later. Yeah, <laughs> does that work? I've not got round my head around how Matt Hancock and someone works. I don't want to have to think about <laughs> dragons and donkeys. Fair play. So the notorious Guardian review uh, basically called it puerile, and I do feel the need to defend it in, to some degree to say that you know. It's aimed at children, mm. and children are pure. Yeah, children totally. do laugh at poo jokes and fart jokes, and it, it seems so, so sort of just pious that review that was like, oh, it's utterly humorless. And you're like, little boys just laugh. I mean, little girls as well, but little boys in particular laugh at fart jokes. Nyra laughs when she farts. Like, yeah, <laughs> I laugh at <laughs> fart jokes, and I am neither a child nor indeed a little yeah. boy. But yeah, yeah, is it Tobias. Scott Tobias? Yeah. He just as I as I mentioned last week, he clearly just doesn't understand the concept of joy. There's just no joy in him at all. Also, if you cannot laugh at any fart jokes, I don't even know why you're bothering. Yeah. How do you think the animation stood up? Oh, the people, like the 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 sort of non-people, not so bad. The people Scared the shit out of me, to be honest. They had that kind of, you know, the uncanny where it like looks like a, it looks like something, but it's not quite right. Uh-huh. This is going to lead back into my doppelganger. I knew chat. we were um, going back there. No, but there's there is a thing that like the uncanny is supposed to like be sort of scary. So it looks it's why fan art is like wrong. Isn't it called the uncanny valley? Isn't that what it's called? Oh, gosh, which is the difference know. between what somebody actually looks like and this thing that sort of looks like them? Well, maybe I'm not sure. And also, Possibly. if any listener is struggling for a name for the vagina, think Uncanny Valley's <laughs> now up for grabs. <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 how the people animations made me feel like. Well, in many out. ways, they look a little bit like drawings in fairy tales. It's like they went for something that was a bit more traditional looking, mm. something that was a bit more grim fairy tale looking, but then that clashes with the way that they've drawn, you know, Donkey or Shrek. And I guess if you do compare it to something like, say, Monsters, Inc., when the detail in Sully's fur is mm. just so beautiful that you want to reach out and stroke him, it doesn't stand up very well. No, not at all. It kind of felt a bit like, Hannah, possibly you'll remember this from your recent encounter with uh, Clubber. What's he called? Mr. T. In, um, Mr. T. Virtual yeah. reality. Yeah. Uh, it's... Don't bring it up again. Sorry. Sorry. He's behind you. Is he called yeah. Clubber Lang? Um, anyway, uh, it, it's, it reminded me a bit of like when you see FIFA games on the PlayStation or whatever. And yeah. Well, Nightmare. Do you remember odd. Nightmare that yes. was on the telly? Yes. Side set right. Side set right. Shit, the spider's got you falling down a well. <laughs> I mean, there were parts that I thought it looked, you know, not not great. But there are bits that I thought actually stood up animation-wise. Given that I went to the cinema last week 
And one of the trailers was for they've made a film version of Dog Tanyon and the Three <gasps> Musket Hounds, right? Right. And I said to my, I said to Ethan, he was like, "Who's going to see that?" And I was like, "A load of people your dad's age in a nostalgic <laughs> way." And he was like, "I've never heard of it." And when I went home, I said to my brother, "Sing Ethan the song from the Musket Hounds," and he went, "Da da 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 da." Musket Hounds are always ready. Ethan was like, "I don't know what's going on here," but the <laughs> animation on that looks so shit, so unbelievably oh, shit. And that was made like what last year. That I think perhaps comparatively, Shrek looks not great in comparison to Pixar and more recent Pixar stuff, you know, stuff like Coco, which just looked amazing, but maybe not as bad as some of the cheaper, like in comparison to some of the cheaper shit that's doing the rounds. Like, but in yeah. fairness, if that was drawn over the last year, maybe it was just one person in lockdown <laughs> in their house. It was me, guys. I've been meaning to tell you I did something else. It looked awful and oh my god, it just like looked awful as in the animation looked awful but the film looked awful. That as makes well. me sad. That makes me so sad. I've I've actually it looked... got it on D I've got Dog Tanyon like the series on D V D, that's how much I love. It. I would rather watch it in the way that it was animated in the eighties than watch it in the way it's been animated now. But we've gone off the topic a bit. Anybody else have anything else to add about Shrek? No, I was a little bit sad when you suggested Shrek and on the back of reading that joyless review from Scott Tobias, I was like, yeah, we'll show it. Oh, yeah, it is a little bit disappointing. You told me it made you cry. Yeah, but I was on like day whatever of my cycle. I mean, going to the fridge and it not being anything I wanted to eat and it made me cry also. So glad you don't live with me. (laughs) It will be perpetual. Why is there nothing in here? No, I agree with you, but the thing, because I was excited to watch it, but that's because I was literally getting Shrek and Shrek 2 confused, and so I think I was, yeah, that is just what happened, and you're right, it's not a fair way to judge it, but I remembered loving it, and then watching it and being like, oh, whatevs. Yeah. And I think on that watch, if I didn't know Shrek 2 existed and was cracking and someone went, oh, they've made a sequel, I'd be like, no, I think I'm all right, actually. And I've been missing out. Yeah. I'm sure I enjoyed it the first time, though. I am sure that I enjoyed the the first Shrek the first time I saw it. And I'm sure that I thought it was, I mean, what was I? I was like 18, 19. But I'm sure that I thought it was smart as well. And I didn't. Really... Well, uh, but a lot of that is because it has a lot of, like I was saying, yeah. pop culture references that don't necessarily mean that much to you anymore, mm. which is the risk. I mean, is it funny? Probably it was, but I don't know that it makes me laugh so much now. Whereas, like, the second one, like, there are actually jokes I can think of now and just think about, <laughs> and it makes me laugh. Like, when they have that row at the dinner table... And nobody's talking to Donkey and he feels really left out. So at one point he just shouts, Donkey! (laughs) A bit that really made me laugh in the first one and did make me laugh again is when Farquaad is interrogating the gingerbread man. That is brilliant. Do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. Oh yeah, no, that's good. That's excellent. Yeah. So I had to Google this time. Having been aware that there must be something funny about the name Farquaad, but never actually understood what that funny is. I decided to actually Google is it. Is it not fuckwad? It's because it sounds like fuckwad yeah. if said in an American accent. But fuckwad's not a word we use. <laughs> and therefore it didn't like 
leap to I thought it might be like fuck hard or something I don't know but uh, no fuck ward fuck ward yeah okay paypal rated or dated oh I'm sorry I think it's dated yeah I'm sorry too I think it's dated yeah I, I give it all sorts of credit for spawning something funnier and better than it but yeah at this point um, I don't think I ever will feel the need to ever watch it again mm. <laughs> to the trees <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be writing a written apology to Scott Tobias obviously <laughs> no what are we doing next week? Um, it's my pick next week. We're going to watch Boys in the Hood. Standard issue for all women.